Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The cover story in the March edition of History Today is written by Thomas Dubois, and it's called Asia and the Old World Order. Now, there's been much talk in recent years of the 21st century being the Asian century. But if we think back even as recently as 1997, when there was the Asian financial crisis, there was a sense in the West that it had overcome uh, any threat from Asia and the developing world. And we had Francis Fukuyama's End of History thesis, for example, which proclaimed the victory of liberal democracy for all time, or so it seemed. Nowadays, we know that things are very, very different, and there is no doubt that Asia will be a major, major power in the 21st century, particularly China. And yet, as Thomas Dubois makes out, and makes very, very plain, Asia was a significant power in the 19th century as well. And in fact, what we've seen is something of an interregnum, I suppose, within this. Um, and in fact, the world was remarkably well connected during the end of the 19th century. Um, can you tell us about your basic thesis, Thomas? Um, the basic thesis comes from the fact that I'm a China historian first. And we always approach history with the idea that China is in the centre. Because that's certainly how uh, China sees its own history. It's, it's China first and everybody else revolving around them. And uh, when I was working in Singapore, it was a bit of a, a jarring experience uh, to hear other people with other views about uh, the 19th century in particular uh, and British colonialism and the degree to which Britain had transformed the world. And so after a, a few years of discussing this with colleagues, the um, conclusion that I came to is that we're both right, uh, that Britain did indeed transform the world, but the reason that it transformed the world was that it recognized how big it was, which is, in fact, not very big at all, certainly not compared to Asia. So the thesis that I came up with, uh, which I don't know if it's a particularly original one, is that the reason Europe and the West more generally became a global force is that it interacted with Asia. Uh, it interacted with the world, but Asia always had a particular place. Now, Asia was very different from Africa. Uh, you have the, the scramble for concessions in Africa. You have um, uh, nativized elites in places like Latin America. Asia is, is substantively different. It is too big to control and also too big to ignore. So um, Asia had to be treated differently. And in the end, what happened was Europe adapted to Asia. And it's hard to see this. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's a bit hard to see this because what you, when you look on a map, you see British India, you see French Indochina, you see the, the Netherlands East Indies. But in fact, um, European power was much more limited in those places. And what comes out of this period, the post-colonial period, is a world that is much more equal. 
What's very striking, Thomas, in your article is that you make the point of the transition in Britain, which I think is a, is, a is a major influence on its relationship with Asia, and that's the shift from manufacturing to finance. And you talk about a shift from Manchester to London. How much did that affect uh, Britain and, and the West's relationship with Asia and China in particular? That, that again, that's one of those moments where a knowledge of the earlier period is a, uh, a hindrance rather than a help. Uh, I think the iconic moment for most people in the relationship between Britain and China is the Opium Wars, and that's, of course, the 1840s. Uh, and that is Britain forcibly opening China up to trade. And that, that, you know, that has a very iconic moment, not just because opium is involved, but because China is being brought into the world uh, commercial system kicking and screaming. They did not want to join. They wanted to join on their own terms. Uh, but that, those, that was not going to be the order of the day. By uh, one generation later, Britain was no longer trading in opium. And on the one hand, it was because China was growing their own opium. But the real reason is that it was no longer profitable. And this is, uh, this is something that I think certainly historians of Asia would have trouble appreciating. The reason that uh, China, uh, pardon me, that Japan, for example, took over the market for textiles in Asia is not because Britain couldn't compete with Japan, but because British manufacturers had other things to do. Textiles were no longer the most profitable product for them to be making. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a surprise to a China historian, certainly, uh, the degree to which foreign interests in Asia were themselves transforming. Uh, and really what did it, what, what, what prompted the change, uh, not just in China, but throughout East Asia, was the militarization of Asia itself. So what was all of this money that when, when you have the sale of, um, of government debt uh, to China, to Japan, and of course to all of the colonies themselves, uh, a lot of it is going to infrastructure, a lot of it is going to um, railroads, medical campaigns, etc., but, but the, the majority of it was going to war <laughs> and armaments. And so uh, this, this was really, this was the, by far the most profitable industry for, for British money to be investing in, was, was in finance itself. And you use a term, Thomas, that I know is not your own, but is one that you seem to subscribe to, which is railway imperialism. I, I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. These examples, when uh, looking at what's happening in the world today, uh, is a very good mirror for what's happening historically. Uh, right now, a lot of people are very nervous about Chinese influence abroad, outside of China, and in particular Africa. And they, they refer to a, a kind of new Chinese colonialism. And really, what are the Chinese doing in Africa? They're building railways, they're building airports, they're building universities, stadiums, uh, stadia. Etc. They're building infrastructure, and in the process of building infrastructure, they are making uh, uh, unfavorable loans. Unfavorable from the point of Africa, uh, they're making loans that are very favorable to themselves. They are using their own workers. They are making a gift of this infrastructure, but they are very certainly getting something out of it. Uh, unique access to raw materials, for example, influence in the government. 
And so the building of infrastructure has uh, you know, numerous knock-on effects that I would say are very similar to what was happening in East Asia 100 years ago. Uh, there was immense competition over railway construction. And in particular, I keep going back to China, not just because I'm a China historian, but because it was the only country of that size that wasn't modernizing on its own or colonized. Uh, Thailand is another example, but compared to China, it's a much uh, less significant game. Uh, the real competition at about the turn of the century was for the construction of railways. Britain, uh, the United States, Japan to a much lesser degree, in particular uh, Russia, uh, everybody was uh, trying to make sure that when they had a treaty with China, that uh, provisions for railway construction would be put in, because with the railroad, you don't just build the line itself. You get to commercialize along the line. You have a piece of land uh, of a few kilometers in either direction, and you can station troops. Um, you can build coal mines. You can build industry. So this, you know, China, of course, was never formally colonized, but how did China get divided into these so-called spheres of influence? At the heart of every one was a foreign railway. And uh, this is something that the Chinese themselves were very aware of. So when we look at, for example, uh, Chinese farmers or Chinese soldiers carrying up railway tracks, the, uh, the, the common explanation is, oh, they're just superstition. They, they don't like foreign things. Well, there may have been some of that. Certainly there was. But they're also not stupid. They realize that a foreign railroad going straight into the heart of their territory is doing more than delivering goods. It's delivering foreign power, which again, until that point, it had all been, this is, this is where we get the term gunboat diplomacy. It had all been uh, concentrated along the shore. It's the railways that brought foreign power from the gunboats straight into the heart of the continent. And how much do you think Chinese leadership, Chinese businessmen, Chinese strategists today are aware of those precedents so far as the way in which the West worked on China? How much, say, that influences China's work in Africa now, the, the, the example you've just given? Are they aware of that? Is it... they, they certainly are. Uh, I would say Chinese leaders, more than most, are, are particularly cognizant of history, of of both their own view of history, which is, of course, very highly stylized, uh, let's be honest about that, mm -hmm. uh, but also of their place in history, how history will be then. So, for example, uh, if uh, you, you ever see in the news that uh, someone would refer to Chinese railroad building in Africa or you know, getting medicine or any of these things that they do uh, as new colonialism, that, that's one of the few times that you'll see Chinese spokespersons uh, to break that icy demeanor, uh, they're, they're, they're very genuinely angry at that charge. And I think with some reason. Uh, the same thing is if, if you refer to uh, Tibet in this way, uh, because they would um, consider themselves to have been the victims of, co of uh, colonization. And that's, of a the point, and that's a point that's made very explicitly by Julia Lovell in her recent history of the Opium Wars. Um, it's essentially yeah. that there's, there's a great deal of cognizance in, in China of something that the West has largely forgotten. And it, it really is time that the West rediscovered interest in, in the Opium Wars there. Um, there is a attempt by the West to keep China as one, because it is this, this valuable resource, this valuable market. 
1894, when China and Japan go to war, for instance, there's great concern in the West, isn't there? Oh, very much so. Um, this was, again, a surprise because the, the, the dominant narrative, certainly in China, is something called Fengua, uh, carving up the melon. The idea that all of the foreign powers are ganging up on China and they all have to band together to carve up China. And it's only because of the stroke of fate that they weren't able to carve up China. Actually, nobody wanted China to be carved up. Um, and this was the, the um, this actually goes back uh, a few decades. Chinese treaties with foreign powers, uh, Japan was a big exception, uh, had something akin to a most favored nation status that if China gave a concession to France, for example, they can build churches in coastal cities. All of the other European powers in the United States got that as well. So there was very much, uh, from the Chinese point of view, an attempt to make sure that all of the powers were equal, and the idea is that they would play off each other for that reason. But it kept them in a balance with each other. That is, is exemplified by the American policy of the open open door, which comes after the Sino, uh, the first Sino. Japanese war. Um, and uh, the, the point is that nobody could afford to have what happened in China, in, in Africa, happen in China, uh, uh, scramble for concession. Uh, the only people who could possibly have benefited from that would have been Russia or Japan, because they're, of course, adjacent to China. They, those are the only two powers that could have afforded to send in a, a, a genuine occupation force. And, of course, an occupation force for China would have been financially disastrous for anybody who did it. Mm -hmm. So even those powers, they may have been uh, prompted by national pride, but I don't think anybody would have looked at that as a realistic plan. Uh, the logic that would have driven China to be uh, partitioned would have been the, the classic large uh, logic of, of late-era colonialism, the denial of territory, um, even if it's useless territory, even if it's going to be costly to administer, we have to get it before somebody else does. And that, that could certainly have happened. And so uh, all of the Western powers were able to keep a, a sort of a gentleman's agreement that China would remain intact. And that all changed after the Sino-Japanese War, uh, when Japan actually did the unthinkable and they took a piece of territory, uh, what is now the city of Dalian, um, on the Liaodong Peninsula. And this is why you have the, uh, the intervention of um, uh, Russia, France, and Germany uh, is because, uh, not because they cared about the Liaodong Peninsula itself, nobody had real interest there, but because once one power takes a piece of territory, the only logical response is for everybody else to do so, and nobody wanted to get pulled into that. So it was, it was surprisingly high on the order of priorities for all of these countries, particularly given its distance and particularly given that it was a sovereign territory. And so, finally, Thomas, can I ask you about something that's perhaps a softer issue, a point that you make about a cultural one? And that is another legacy of this period of the 19th century, which is very much with us today, and that's such things as passports and quarantine, for example, which um, is stimulated in some part the modern system by the relationship between Asia and the West? I, I think quarantine is a very good example of how Asia prompted what, what's essentially a European system. I mean, so many of the institutions in the world are European in origin. 
Salian system, the passport system, the quarantine system, these all began in Europe. The question is, how did a, Europe, a set of European concerns and, and institutions and all of the cultural ideas that go along with them, how did they become globalized? They became globalized not in the context of empire as much as in, in the context of adaptation to Asia. And quarantine is a very good example of this. Uh, the history of quarantine goes in, in, in two uh, pretty discernible stages. One is when Europe itself discovers quarantine, and that's in the context of cholera in the mid-19th century, when they finally get together. And all of these countries, uh, of course, everyone had had their own rules of quarantine and what do you do when you, when you enter another territory. And Russia, in particular, was very good at this because they're a massive land empire, and they had had uh, very big problems with plague in particular. Um, but the institution of a continent-wide system and one in which, uh, in particular, the ships of one country would be subject to the laws of another country, and that this would be standardized across Europe. That was relatively late. It was only the 18, uh, the, the later uh, decades of the 1800s, of the 19th century. That's stage one. How did it become a global system? Um, it's also, it, it all comes down to money, actually. You have cities like Singapore. You have cities like Hong Kong or, or Yokohama, where uh, they may have been either you know, belong to Japan or belong to China or belong to one or, or the other of the empires. But trade was so uh, interconnected, and it was such a high-stakes game. I mean, that, that's always something to remember with Asia, is that there was so much money to be made in Asia that uh, people were willing to, to do drastic things to make sure that they could keep their feet in that market. And uh, it's about the turn of the century that you have, for example, you have a plague in Hong Kong. And now it's not just the British sending their scientists to, uh, to fight plague in Hong Kong. Um, the Japanese go as well. And uh, the Russians send uh, Swiss bacteriologists. And everybody has a, you know, there's prestige, of course, involved in this, but everybody has a stake in making sure that Hong Kong stays plague-free because everybody needs Hong Kong. And the same thing happens a few years later in a, a railway town in, in North China called uh, Harbin. Uh, you have the very first time in Chinese history that you have an international conference on a matter of Chinese domestic security. So the... the the interconnectivity of the world, plus the fact that nobody can leave Asia. And, and this was the point that this research really brought home to me over and over, is that Europe was much more heavily dependent on Asia, financially, than the reverse. Yeah, well, thank you, Thomas. That's a, that's a tremendously stimulating article, and I think it just proves on the old one that things don't change in time. Um, and your article on the Asian century is the, uh, on the, what we might call the first Asian century, Asia in the 19th century, and its relationship with the West is the cover story in the March edition of History Today. So thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you very much.